Biltmore Church, how are we doing today? Yeah, six of you are jacked up about being here today. Biltmore Church, how are we doing today? We're doing good, awesome. It is so good to be with you guys today. My name is Jason Gaston. I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here alongside of an incredible team of shepherds and leaders. And uh, I get the privilege today of uh, opening up God's Word and studying the Word together. If you're joining us online, we want to say welcome to you too. We're glad that you are here. I do want to just take a brief moment and, uh, and, and speak to our guests. If, if you're here today and you're a guest, um, outside of just a, a hand clap, I really want you to know that we really are glad that you're here. Um, we, uh, we're, we're thankful that you decided to give Biltmore Church a try today. Um, we hope that as you walked into the space today or as you interacted with people uh, online, that you, you sensed something different about the people of God here at Biltmore Church, that uh, we are a people that are hospitable. We want you to feel like when you walk into any of our campuses or engage in any of our worship services, that it just feels like home. Uh, and we also want you to know that we are, we are people that want to fix our eyes on Jesus and we want to passionately worship Jesus in everything that we do and everything that we say. And we'd love to get a chance to meet you and just say hey uh, to you. Now, uh, one thing that I know is we lived in a pretty fast-paced world, do we not? We do, yeah. And oftentimes, it's, uh, it's, it's, we're hard-pressed to just stop and reflect and remember. And uh, I realize that not everything in the Christian life can be measured by numbers, okay? There's a lot of growth that happens individually, a lot of growth that happens in your groups and your connect groups, uh, in your workplaces that you just can't measure on paper, uh, but some things you can measure. And I want to read you a couple uh, stats that I, um, I just decided this past week. I was like, man, I wonder, I wonder what God is up to on our church. Let me, let me just read to you three quick things here, okay? We have had 100, before this weekend, we have had 172 people that have gone through starting point here since August, okay? So this is since August. We've had 727 first-time guests across all of our campuses. You know what that means? That means, church, that uh, you're doing the work of just being an inviter. Being an inviter is not the same as being a, a gospel sharer, but it is a step in that process. And you're doing an awesome job of inviting your neighbors because you feel like this is a place that's going to preach the gospel and your friends can hear the gospel too, or you know that it's a place that they can find as a church home. And then as of this weekend, okay, we just baptized, since August, we just baptized number 149 and number 150. That is incredible, y'all. Um, I say that because God is moving in Western North Carolina, and he's not just moving within the walls of the church. Right? The, the church gathers within this. I'm going to say this to you every time I stand up in front of you because I want you to hear this. The, the movement of God, the mission of God goes forward not by a building that the church gathers in, but when the church scatters with their eyes on Christ and their feet set to the mission. And you guys are doing that. You're doing that in your schools. You're doing that in your workplace. You're doing that on your sports teams. You're doing that in, your, in the parks. You're doing that in your neighborhoods. You are doing that everywhere. And I am grateful to lock arms with you as we pray and see the Spirit of God do something incredible in our communities and in turn to the rest of the world. Can I get an amen? Somebody. Amen. All right, listen, today we're going to be in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Hebrews 12. Or, or if you just got them on your phone, turn them on, get the glow on your face. Let's make it happen. Hebrews 12, we're going to be in the first three verses today. Before we get there, let's take a journey back in history. Okay, a little history lesson today. 17th and 18th century. A lot of, uh, a lot of things were happening in our country. A lot of things were happening in this nation that was beginning to form. And specifically, there was a spirit of adventure and exploration that was being formed in the American people. 
And it was, it was happening on the backs, on the shoulders of men and women who would explore spaces and places in our nation that no Westerner had yet to explore. It was also known as the American frontier, the great frontier, as it would become to be known. And it was expanding through people who embodied risk. Now, one of those people was a man by the name of John Wesley Powell. All right, John Wesley Powell. John Wesley Powell grew up and he had these two passions in his life. He had this passion for the created world. He loved to be in the outdoors. It's like 75% of Western North Carolina. You love to go on hikes. You love to take care of things. That was John Wesley Powell in the 1800s. He had this passion and this love for the created world. He also had a passion for people. And he wanted people to know that same passion that he had. So naturally, he became a teacher. John Wesley Powell would realize his dream of becoming a teacher in the late 1800s. However, news of a civil war was breaking out in 1861, and Powell leaves his lifelong dream of being a teacher, and he enrolls as a second lieutenant in the Union Army. Just a year or so later, Powell finds himself on the battlefield at the Battle of Shiloh in western Tennessee. Now, why is that important? Because on that battlefield, Powell was struck by a bullet that shattered literally every bone in his right arm. Shattered it. Ouch. Okay? A couple days later, Powell would have his right arm amputated. And he thought to himself in one of his journeys, uh, journal entries, he thought to himself, I thought that my life was over. I was, I, was, um, I was set back by an injury. However, John Wesley Powell decided that he too would take part in this great American adventure. Even though he had a disability, he thought to himself, I can contribute. And there was one, one thing that many had considered yet to be explored at that time. That thing was the Colorado River running through the heart of the Grand Canyon. So John Wesley Powell signs up and he says, hey, I'm going to take a journey of men in a boat, okay? When I say like we're going to raft the river through the Grand Canyon, I'm not talking about an experienced guide who's been down the river before in a raft that the tire crew can put over their heads and hike it into the canyon. We're talking about massive, heavy, clunky boats with a one-armed boat captain. Powell says, I'll take a group of men and we'll go down that river and we'll be the first ones to explore it. So this ragtag group of 10 men journeyed down the river in these clunky wooden boats, hoping and believing for the best, aka we hope we make it out alive. In his personal journal that he kept, which would later be turned into a book titled Down the Great Unknown, Powell says the following as his team began officially entering the walls of the canyon. Listen to this. He says, we are now ready to start our way down the great unknown. We have, a, we have but a month's rations remaining. The flour has been resifted through a mosquito net. The spoiled bacon has been dried and the worst of it boiled. As a bacon lover, that just crushes my soul. The few pounds of dried apples we have left have been spread in the sun. The sugar has all melted and gone on its way down the river. But, he says... We do have a large sack of coffee. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Come on with that, somebody. All right. If I got coffee, I can make it. All right. He says this. We are three quarters of a mile in the depths of the earth. And the great river shrinks into insignificance as it dashes its angry waves against the walls and cliffs that rise to the world above. We have an unknown distance 
yet to run, an unknown river yet to explore. What falls there are we know not. What rocks beset the channel we know not. What walls rise over the river we know not. And I love this next part. This is what he says. Oh, well. Oh, well. Now, uh, let's rewind it a few months back. Imagine you're sitting across from John Wesley Powell, and he's giving you his recruiting pitch. He's like, hey, they're going to talk about you forever in the history books. You are going to journey down the Colorado River. Nobody has ever explored it. You are going to have your name in every newspaper printed in this country. And in fact, in 2021, at Biltmore Church in the booming metropolis of Arden, North Carolina, they're going to be talking about you. You're thinking, sign me up, bro. I'm in. Who doesn't love a sense of adventure? You're like, yeah, let's go. Now, fast forward five, six, seven months. You're looking at the crew, you're looking at what you have left, and here you are standing on the banks of the river, and you hear the class five rapids clashing off the walls. Fear starts to set in, and you begin to ask yourself, what have I done? I'm not sure I signed up for this. This is going to be a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. When you get to the book of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 12, we actually find a lot of the followers of Jesus in the same space. You see, they had put their yes on the table and they said, we're going to leave our former way of life and we're going to now cling to this new way of life. But the things for the followers of Jesus has started to get a little bit difficult. And as they are starting to run their race, they're actually starting to drop like flies. They're like, they're bowing out of the game. They're like, oh man, I don't, I don't really know. I, I didn't really sign up for this. Why? Because these people had real life pressures that were being put on them. In fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, you, you see this recollection and this instruction in the midst of all of their pain that they were enduring. See, they left a the community, right? They said no to their former way of life. And they said yes to this new way of life. But... The people that they used to run with are now putting this pressure on them, trying to make them come back. And the book of Hebrews is all about, no, 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 no. Jesus is better. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. Listen, listen to all of the different things that they were enduring. They were enduring social hardships, taunting, public ridicule, public affliction. They had economic hardships as they had many of their possessions literally taken from them. They had nothing left to their name. Some of them were thrown in prison, beaten, flogged, mistreated. Many of them, if not all of them, were risking death day in and day out, week in and week out. The pressure was unrelenting. So much so, if you read in the book of Hebrews, you see that a lot of them had said, man, I'm not sure this is what I signed up for. So they started to forsake the gathering of the body. And then they began to hide their identity as a follower of Jesus because they're like, I'm not sure that this is what I signed up for when I said yes to Jesus. If we can be brutally honest today, I think some of us are in that same place. Some of you, 
or in this race and you're looking and you're like, I'm not sure that I signed up for this journey to be so hard. Following Jesus was supposed to be easy. Maybe you're struggling with faith because of a broken relationship. Maybe maybe you're struggling with faith even as you sat in our services the last couple weeks and you heard sermons on marriage and parenting and you're struggling with the whole idea of continuing to endure in this race before you because you've experienced the pain of a marriage that didn't end up the way that you thought it would. Or maybe you're single and you have just prayed and you have asked God to provide for you a partner and he hasn't answered yet. Maybe, maybe you're here and you heard a sermon on parenting and it just brings a lot of pain to your heart because of, man, I don't know, some infertility that you may have in your family. Or maybe you've experienced the loss of a child. The road has been hard. It's been anything but easy. Or maybe, if you're anything like me, you came in here this weekend, Mach 5, with your hair on fire and two wheels in your car, praying that you got here on time and thankful that your kids had pants on. Right? Because the everyday rhythms of life are just overwhelming. Maybe you thought like when you signed up to follow Jesus that it was going to be like all cups of coffee by your window with the view, with the changing leaves, with Paul David trips, new morning, new mercies, loving life, and you're lucky to get a minute and a half of prayer because your kids are exhausting you. And then when they finally go to bed, the only thing you want to do is sleep. The journey has been hard, and walking with Jesus is tiring. That's why the writer of Hebrews writes this letter to the church. He says, don't give up. Run your race. Endure. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Don't give up. Jesus is worth it. Today, as we look at Hebrews 12, the first three verses, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three key ingredients of what it looks like to have a faith that endures to the end. A faith that has the type of mentality like John Wesley Powell as he stood on the banks of the unknown and he thought, I don't know what lies ahead of me in life. I don't know what tomorrow brings. Oh well, let's run. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one through three. Therefore, he says, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. If you underline things in your Bible, I want you to underline that sentence right there. That's going to play a very pivotal part a little bit later. Because Jesus, the, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy that was laid before him, he endured the cross, despised its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Three things for the weary soul today. Number one, you don't run alone. You don't run alone. Verse 12, I mean, chapter 12 says this, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, to get an understanding of where you are right now in Hebrews chapter 12, you got to press rewind and you got to go back a few chapters to really get where we are here. 
When you get to chapter 10, you see this summation because the book of Hebrews is this, um, is this collection of theology that's showing you that everything that has, has gone on before from the Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus and that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. He is the one our hearts have longed for. He is the one that our hearts have waited for. And in chapter 10, the, the writer says that in the Old Testament, God had set up the sacrificial system with the priest. And the priest would go in day after day and offer up a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But then he says this, he said, but what we know is this. We know that the sacrifice offered by the priest could not take away the sins of everybody. So what has to happen? Enter Jesus. This is the gospel. Do not miss. This is beautiful. Okay. Enter Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest, would not bring a sacrifice with him. He himself would lay himself down and become the sacrifice, as the writer would say, to take away the sins of the world. That God would, by his blood, bring the unrighteous and make them righteous by his sacrifice. And then he says this, he says, because God has made a way back to him through the blood shed by Jesus. He says, we are to be a people. Remember, remember their life circumstance. We are to be a people who hold unswervingly to this hope that we profess. Unswervingly, hold fast, hold the line, hold tight. And then at the end of chapter 10, verse 39, he says, remember, we are not like those that shrink back in fear and are destroyed, but we are like those who walk in faith and endure. That's the end of chapter 10. And then if you know your Bible, the very next verse is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We know that as the hall of faith. Here's a prime example of people that have run this race before you that you can take encouragement from. By faith, Noah builds an ark. Sounds great. But the dude is in the middle of a desert with no rain. People mocked him and called him crazy. But he did it, and God showed up and showed off his glory. By faith, Abraham leaves his land even though he doesn't even know where he's going. God says, that's the kind of faith that I bless. And then he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Do you guys remember the story of the walls of Jericho falling down. You guys remember that? You remember God's game plan for taking down the walls, right? It's like, hey, we're going to attack the city. We're going to come in with our bow and arrows, and we're going to dig our cannons that we don't have yet. We're going to shoot it at the wall, and the walls come tumbling down. That's what happened, right? No. What happened? God says, hey, here's a great game plan. Listen up. You guys are actually just going to march around it, right? You're going to march around it for days. And then on the last day, you're going to hear a trumpet sound. And when the trumpet sounds, what are you going to do? You're going to scream at the wall. And guess what happens? When you yell and scream at the wall, the walls are going to come tumbling down. God's going to show up and show off. And guess what he did? He showed up and he showed off. Hebrews 11 also tells us, by faith, the people left Egypt and they crossed the sea on dry land. By faith, some of them conquered kingdoms. By faith, some shut the mouths of lions. By faith, the sun stood still for Joshua. By faith, they escaped the fiery furnace. God was doing some incredible things. Through their faith. A couple weeks ago, I met with a pastor. Let me just give you an example of this locally. I met with a pastor of a small rural church just down the mountain. As I sat across from this man, my heart just took great courage because of his faith. He took this job as a pastor of this church three years ago. 
the five years prior to his arrival, they had not baptized a single person. Five years, the waters had not been stirred. And I sat with him across the table right over here at Luella's in Biltmore Park. And he told me, he said, the first day that he walked into that church three years ago, he saw the dried baptistry and he made it his prayer closet. And he said, God, stir the waters again through the hearts of the lost, that they would come to you. He prayed for five people. God gave him 15 in year one. Year two, he saw more. Listen, year three, three years in, there are upwards of 60 people in their church that have said yes to Jesus. Notice in, yes to Jesus and have followed in faith through baptism. Here's the thing. That's half the church. God is doing some incredible things all around you in the past and in the present through great faith. But here's the thing. There's another set of people in Hebrews 11 that we forget about. Or I should say we'd like to skip over. By faith, many were sawn in two. By faith, they were stoned to death. By faith, some were killed by the sword. They wandered in the desert. When we look at their situation, we say, there's no shot they're going to finish the race. But the writer of Hebrews says, oh, no, no, no. They finished it, and they finished it well. 14 years old, a kid by the name of Noah Spivey, a kid that I had the chance of discipling and watching him grow into the ways of the Lord, was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, a rare form of cancer. One day, sitting in his house, after he'd just come home from a a round of chemo, it was destroying his body. You literally saw his body going from a, a bulky young frame to a skeleton of a human. He sat down, came in, and he sat down on top of the dining room table, and he laid himself flat on the table. And his dad, John, I'll never forget it as long as I live. His dad, John, came and wrapped his arms around Noah and held him tight. And he said, Noah, if only I could take your place. And Noah, with every piece of strength left in his body, he sat up and he looked at his dad in the eye. He said, Dad, if you were to take my place, how would I have ever known all the things that God wanted to teach me through the process of this cancer? Woo! That's a, that's a kid who lost his life to cancer, but said, Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it in the highs, and Jesus is worth it in the lows. Why are both of those people listed in Hebrews chapter 11? Because the writer wants you to know that the same God that is present when he shuts the mouths of lions and he does something incredible in your life is the same God that's present in the lowest of lows that you will ever find yourself. The psalmist would say that we have a shepherd that walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. You on the mountaintop, great. God is good. You're in the valley, great. God is good. You can keep running. Run. You have one who cares. You have one that knows. You have one who feels. But you also don't have a legacy of the past. You also have a call to run with many in the present. You see, he uses language right here in Hebrews 12. He he says, let us run. Let us you guys catch that? That's, that's plural, meaning you don't run alone. We need people in our lives to pick us up, to help us keep running the race. Y'all, listen, I despise running with a passion. Anybody in the house? Can I get an amen? Somebody. By myself, I can run a mile and a half dying. 
But you put somebody next to me, I'm going 1.6, baby. <laughs> going 1.6. I'm going a whole nother step. You know, um, if you hate hunting, now is the time to just kind of tune out. I'll welcome you back in about 38 seconds, okay? Uh, I found myself in a duck swamp years ago, and uh, I keep a, um, a feather of a duck that I shot in my Bible in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This is a feather off of a wood duck that I shot. And um, it's a reminder to me because uh, we had worked really hard in the swamp that morning. We had this group of ducks coming in, and we had the decoys out. We were calling them. We were working them really good, and we, they were cupping up, and they were coming in. And at the last minute, two of them saw something that wasn't right. And they bailed. Well, guess what happened when two of them bailed? The rest of them bailed. About a minute and a half later, a solo duck comes rolling around, and he cups up right in front of me. Pow! Nailed him. I walk out there to the water, and as I grab that duck, I reminded myself. I said, this guy had no wingman. And when you have no wingman to run with in life, you end up dead on the water. Some of you are feeling the weight of running in isolation, and you need a wingman. You need to know that there are people that have gone on before you that have run the race faithfully, and they're cheering you on. But you need a brother or a sister in the trenches with you today. You need a brotherhood. You need a sisterhood to pick you up when your soul grows weary and say, keep running because Jesus is better. Number two, point two. How you run matters. How you run matters. Look, look at what he says in the text. He says this. He says, let us lay aside every hindrance. Now, there are some things in your life that might not be sin, but they may be holding you back, right? It may be just like a hobby that has completely taken over your life, and it's, as a result of it, it's become sin. It's, it's a good thing, but ultimately it may end up becoming a God thing and become sin for you. But then he says, but there's also another category, and there is sin that so easily ensnares you. Now, you know what a snare is meant to do, right? It's meant to grab hold of you. But when it grabs hold of you, it does not let you go. It's literally meant to kill you. A snare is a trap that lays hold of you, and it does not let go until the predator arrives to destroy you completely. That's what sin does. Sin grabs a hold of you and it clings so close and it wants to destroy you. Jesus says there's a far better way to run that race and you got to flee from the sin that tries to weigh you down. Now, if you were going to pull up the television, you're going to watch the Boston Marathon. I feel like there's marathons going on all over the place right now, okay? And you pull up the Boston Marathon, you turn on the television and boom, there it is. The first runners are getting ready to leave the line and start their race. And you notice that one of them has a 40-pound vest on. You're thinking one of two things. That, that person's definitely a CrossFitter and they're in the wrong place, <laughs> right? Or there's no shot that they finish. Because who can run a marathon with a 40-pound uh, vest on their body? They're not going to make it to the finish line. I think too often as believers, we actually throw more weight on than we do throwing weight off. I used to work with teenagers a lot. I've got one budding in my home right now and his little mustache. It's great. And I remember a common thing that used to always be said among teenagers, and somehow it just crept into adulthood. We would always ask the question, question, is this a sin? 
man, is this a sin? Is this thing that I'm getting ready to engage in or whatever? Is it a sin? When the real question that we should be asking is, will this help me run? Will this help me run? Will it help me run as hard and as fast as I can toward Jesus today? Will it help me run? Because a faith that endures is a faith that is full of repentance. You've got to throw the weight off. The Christian life, listen, this is not a bad thing. This is a God thing. I will say this until I'm blue in the face because I need to remind my heart of this every single day. The Christian life is one of confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. It's acknowledging the sin that's clinging to you and throwing it off and looking somewhere else. Confession and repentance. The Bible says that it is God's kindness towards you that leads you to repentance. It's not his wrath. It's not a burden. It's so you don't go back to the old way. You can keep running forward. The key to running the race before you isn't about running the race perfectly. It's about running the race faithfully. I remember someone explaining this to me for the first time. My eyes were just like, wow, this is what it's like to be a believer. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16 says, Though a righteous, a righteous person falls seven times, he will get up. But the wicked will stumble into ruin. They'll stay down. Now, imagine, imagine that you're like at the mall or, I don't know, let's just say you're out on a trail. We're out on a trail hiking, okay? That seems to be more Western Carolina-ish, all right? So you're on a trail hiking and you're, you're following somebody and they got nothing on them and they start walking and they fall. They trip and fall. You're like, oh, Oh, that looked painful. And they get up and they start walking again and they take another 20, 30 steps. What happens? They trip and fall. Now you're thinking, what is going on up there? And then they get up again and they start walking and then they fall again. This is flat ground, okay? They haven't even gotten to the top yet. This is flat ground. They, they trip and fall again. Now all of a sudden you're pulling your phone out. You're like, this might go on my social media stories. This is getting interesting. That's three times. And they get back up and they start walking. Boom, down goes Frazier. Four. They get up and they start walking. Boom! Down goes Fraser. Five. All of a sudden you're starting to think something seems off, right? Something doesn't seem right. And they get back up. Boom! Get back up. Boom! Get back up. Boom! You would, you would start to call the paramedics because you think this person needs help. What the, the writer of Proverbs said is the righteous man is the one that falls and gets back up. Falls and gets back up. Falls and gets back up. You don't have to run this race perfectly. You can't run this race perfectly, but you can run it faithfully. And the way that you run matters. How you run this race matters. If the sin tangles you up and throws you down, boom, repent and get back up and keep walking forward because he's worthy and he's worth it. Number three, fix your focus on the prize. Fix your focus on the prize. Now, maybe a better way to say this is where you run matters. Where you run matters. You can't hit what you can't see, right? You can't hit. Like if I'm coaching baseball and I got a kid up at the plate and he's, he's set up really well, his hands are in great position, but all of a sudden he just starts to yank that chin out, he's not going to make contact with the ball. Why? Because he can't see it. That's why I always tell him, keep your head behind contact. You got to see that ball through. Hit it. You can't hit what you can't see. Look what he says. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on 
Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 says this, consider him, think about him, set your mind, your eyes and your mind and your heart on him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Don't miss this. This is so crucial. If you walk out of here today and you only hear point one and point two, you're only going to become more religious. You got to get this part right here. The validation of our faith is not the energy in which we, in which we run. It is the object that we run towards. The validation of our faith is not determined by how much we can pick ourselves up and keep running. It's the object that we are running towards. We become what we behold. When our eyes are set on something, they're changing us from the inside out. This morning, before I got up to preach, I got this lovely reminder from my phone to tell me just how much time this week I have wasted looking at it. And by God's grace, somehow it went down by an hour and 32 minutes to an embarrassing amount of time, upon which I will not tell you. My family refers to it as the rectangle of doom, because why? When I stare at that thing constantly, I begin to be changed by it. I start to find my identity in it. I want to be known through it. And I'm starting to neglect the thing around me that's the most important. It is literally changing me. I'm throwing my weight, my identity, everything in it for this validation. We call that worship. It's where I'm finding worth. Worthship. Weight. I'm putting my weight on it. One theologian says this, he says, worship is the natural reflex of the human heart. You and I are hardwired towards it, meaning we are going to behold something and it's going to change us. God says this, Jesus. Jesus, he's the only one that your heavenly father has said, your best version of you is found when you fix your eyes on him and you become transformed in his likeness as you keep running towards him. Fix your eyes there, there, there is your prize. He is your prize. You can get back up and run because he already ran that race. It says this, this, Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter, meaning he started the work in you. And if he started the work in you, guess what he's going to do? He's going to complete it. Y'all, like, he started it without us even knowing. At seventh grade, Kathy Van Osdale, that name is a name of no significance to you, but Kathy Van Osdale is a hero of the faith to me. Kathy Van Osdale was one of my, my teachers in seventh grade. The night I gave my life to Jesus, my youth pastor said, hey, when you get to school tomorrow, you need to go tell Kathy Van Osdale, Miss Van Osdale, that you gave your life to Christ. I was like, Okay. So I get, I get to school the next morning, and I walk in, and I say, Miss Van Osdale? She said, yeah. I said, um, last night I became a follower of Jesus. And she started weeping. I didn't understand, and she looked at me, and she said, I've been praying for this day. Every single day since you entered my classroom, I've walked over to your seat, and I've laid my hand on your seat, and I've prayed that you would become a follower of Jesus. I didn't start that. Jesus did through Kathy Van Osdale. And if he started that work when I couldn't see it, surely he will perfect it when I can't see it. 
You know, the, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and scorned his shame. Let me ask you a question. What was the joy that was before Jesus? The cross? Are you kidding? The place of his execution, that's the, that's the joy? No, that wasn't the joy. That was horror. Deuteronomy 21 tells us that cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Jesus took the curse that we deserved upon himself. That wasn't the joy. It's what the cross brought on the other side. You see, the joy set before him wasn't the pain that he would endure. It's what the pain brought about. The way back to the Father for you, for me. You are his greatest joy. Your salvation for his namesake, for his glory, you are his greatest joy. So you can get back up and you can keep running. You tired and, tired and weary? Welcome to the club. Eyes on Jesus. Run. You hurt, broken. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Get up. Run. Maybe you're here today and you have, um, you walked into this place, this service. You got a lot of things that are just weighing you down. Jesus says it's time to run a little bit freer than you did yesterday. He's good. He's faithful. You can trust him. He, run, he ran that race and he ran it perfectly so that we can follow the one who started this work in us and we'll finish it. Today, as we close our time, you may have some things that you just need to lay down. Maybe you just need to come up to the altar or at your seat, wherever you are, and you just need to just cry out to God and thank him for his grace. It's sufficient for you and his power is actually made perfect in your weakness. You can cling to him. Maybe some things you need to repent of and run from, God says, come. However, the Lord is stirring in your hearts today as we sing our final song. I would invite you to come to the front and pray. Or maybe you just grab a friend and say, hey, would you pray over me right where I sit? Where you do it matters, but that you doesn't matter, but where you do it. That you do it. That you would posture your heart in such a way before him. That's what matters. The old hymn writer said it this way. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you about what it brought our salvation. God, now would you stir in us, would you move in us, would you have your way. Father, I pray that we would be a people that run free from sin. We would be a people that get back up. We got brothers and sisters in the trenches to help us run faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.